Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we'll be opening our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, as we continue our series, The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men, with a message entitled, Taking an Active Stance for Sexual Purity. Charles Spurgeon once said, Get your friends to tell you your faults, or better still, welcome an enemy who will watch you keenly and sting you savagely. What a blessing such an irritating critic will be to a wise man. What an intolerable nuisance to a fool. See, most of us don't want to be told what to do. After all, we as a culture have come to believe that truth lies inside of us and that external pressures are annoying at best and abusive at worst. Having someone telling us our faults may be one thing. Having someone tell us what's right and wrong is completely intolerable to most in our culture. And when anyone comes to Christ, we are introduced to a new culture, the culture of the church. Now look, I am aware that the church has, in some cases, abused her authority. And I'm also aware that in many places, the church has invented rules about right and wrong that far exceed the Scripture. Everything from fashion to the kind of transportation you're allowed to own to artistic expressions. I know that when when the organ was first introduced, some churches thought the instrument itself was worldly. I mean, there are stories of Christian people banning bicycles, requiring women to never wear pants, arguing against makeup, making the case that radios are of the devil. I mean, the list goes on and on. And when these kinds of issues occur, unwise people will argue that the church ought to get out of people's private business. Instead, what we should have been arguing is the principle that Paul laid down in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Do not go beyond what is written. You know, another way of saying that is, do not go beyond the direct and explicit commands of the Bible. I mean, yeah, there are principles from biblical commands that we can infer, but even here, we need to be careful. For whenever we form inferences, we need to be humble and not make rules. Instead, we ought to be careful to say that when the Bible makes a direct command, we are to obey and insist that everyone in the church do exactly the same. And where the Bible does not issue a direct command, we ought to insist on liberty and the freedom of the individual to act as he or she believes the Holy Spirit is leading them. Now, later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, Paul will work that out when it comes to eating food that has been offered up to an idol. And there he will introduce principles that guide us in making decisions, but not matters of church discipline. But here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul will speak about a matter in which he leaves absolutely no wiggle room at all. So let's read our text, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 3. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. You know, for the next several weeks, we will be covering three important chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 5 to 7. This is a section that deals primarily with sex, although there is a part of it that deals with money. But most of all, this section is about relationships between believers who are struggling to live in a community of accountability. 
Today, we're going to be looking at something that seems most painful. What should the Christian church do in the area of sexual sin? You know, I say it's painful because a great many churches have decided they would preach Christian sexual morality, but would take no action when someone breaks the commands of Scripture. And that's an issue that we have to consider. But before we make our application to our day, let's step back and consider what this text meant when it was originally given. In its day, the city of Corinth was considered one of the entertainment capitals of the world. They had a very large theater for plays. They had public lectures, musical concerts. They had Roman gladiators fighting in Corinth. Indeed, Corinth was the first city in Greece to have Roman gladiators fighting in their arena. They hosted large sporting events. The greatest of all was called the Isthmian Games, held every second year, which in the ancient world was one of the largest sporting events in the world. Indeed, these games were second only to the well-known Olympic Games. And in Corinth, it was not only the men who ran in races, but the women did as well. In fact, women also participated in war chariot races and sometimes even beat the men. And so Corinth became a place of liberated women operating on the same social status as men. But for our purposes, let's ask what the spiritual climate was like in Corinth. You know, I suppose if you had gone to Corinth, you you probably would have noticed the temples first. You would have seen temples to at least 19 different gods and goddesses, and that's not including all the buildings that held services for the mystery religions. But most impressive of all of these was the temple of Epaphrodite. She was a Greek goddess whose Roman name was the goddess Venus. She was thought as the ancestor of Julius Caesar, so you can see the importance of that temple in the city. Now here's where it gets a little sketchy. It's hard to know if the description I'm giving happened during Paul's time or before, but it may have well have happened during his time. The temple of Epaphrodites once housed over 1,000 sacred temple prostitutes, and every single day they'd come out of that temple with, with quite a spectacle and circle through the city and then return back to the temple. On the bottom of their sandals as they walked were written these words, follow me. And of course, many men and women did. It was considered to be a spiritual experience to have sex with a temple prostitute in the temple of Epaphrodite. So since we're, we're talking about culture determining what people think and what they approve of and what they condemn, please understand the situation in the church in Corinth. These new believers had come to Christ out of that culture, a culture that was the exact opposite of the lifestyle of the gospel. And let me say, that's not so far-fetched from our own culture. See, we too live in a culture where unbridled sexual expression is considered to be normative and often it's considered to be healthy. And the city of Corinth was a city very much like most Western cities today. Individual rights and freedoms were very important. Sexual ethics were regarded as largely a private matter. Sexual permissiveness was everywhere. Indeed, if you asked a Corinthian, they would have told you that sex was natural and normal and sex outside of marriage was just a part of the human experience. Sex in a temple could elevate it as an act of worship. And the church of Jesus in Corinth came from people who were born into that culture. 
And they were saved in the midst of that culture. And some of them needed some encouragement to see how radically different the culture of Christ was from what they were accustomed to. But that's not unlike our situation is today. Now, I know in this matter there is a certain generational divide. But the time is surely at hand when it's not just sex outside of marriage that will be considered normal. But numerous sexual encounters are considered normal already. Homosexuality is considered normal, but also a host of transgender experiences where young people will be encouraged to consider themselves any gender they may desire. And as we know, public washrooms and and showers are surely in question today. And all of this will make the Christian morality regarding sex to seem rather outdated or outrageous and even subversive. Let's just admit it. One of the most difficult things any Christian community can do is to take sin. And here, I mean quite specifically to take sexual sin seriously. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say one of the most difficult things an individual Christian can do is to take sin seriously because those of us who are Christians, at least if we are serious about our Bibles, know what God's standards for sex actually are. And so we can and individually take this sin seriously. But because there is a value in our culture that individualism is king, we have a great deal of difficulty to take sin seriously as a community. It takes courage to do what Paul commands in this passage. He calls upon the Christian community to name sexual sin and not to tolerate it in the church of Jesus. See, I have found that the Christian community often does things the wrong way around. We condemn sexual sin in the culture and ignore sexual sin in the church. Later on in this chapter, in verse 12, Paul will say, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And in truth, many of us inside the church have made exactly that our business. 1 Corinthians 5 will challenge those assumptions. It will force us to ask questions of how the church becomes the community of God's people and provides an alternative to the cultures in which we live. Perhaps our sexuality and how we live out that sexuality as God's people is one way that we ought to stand out as absolutely unique from the cultural norm. But do we? And what should that look like? A few interesting thoughts that Dr. Neufeld will consider when we continue. Biblical Truth Engaging Culture. That's the purpose of Back to the Bible Canada's new television program, Truth in Life Today. Join Dr. John Newfeld as he engages the questions of life and faith with insightful Bible teaching and invites special guests to discuss the truth of God's Word as it relates to issues of our culture. Issues like the value of life, finding comfort in the tragedies of life, the importance of understanding the Bible, the truth about heaven and hell, and God's plan and purpose for your life. All this and so much more. So join Dr. John Newfelt every week for a new episode of Truth and Life today on Joy TV, online, or by signing up for the Back of the Bible Canada mobile app. For more information, visit truthandlifetoday.ca or call us at 1 800 663 2425.
What happens when a church doesn't take sexual sin seriously? Well, let's have a look at the first four words of 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. It is actually reported. Now, the grammar of that suggests that it was frequently and regularly reported. And not just to Paul, but that people all over who knew about the church in Corinth, whether they were Christians or not, people talked about what was happening. In fact, when people mentioned the church in Corinth, they very likely would have said, oh yeah, isn't that the place that permits incest? So what happens when the church doesn't take sexual sin seriously? Well, two things happen. First, our standards are widely discussed. We know that to be the case, especially in regards to the sexual sins in the clergy that have become so frequent. And secondly, our practices are widely condemned. And that's fascinating because such condemnation has come from a culture that's already sexually broken. But what the pagan world seems to know intuitively is that the church should live according to a different standard. If even the church of Jesus cannot keep the biblical standards of purity, what hope is there for the broader culture? But we all know that's true. You know, I recently read a book, uh, one on the late atheist Christopher Hitchens. You know, it turns out that Hitchens had an enormous respect for Christian people who lived and believed consistently. He disagreed with them vehemently, but yet he respected them. But he loathed and he had contempt for those who lived and believed a lie. And I would argue, he's not the only one to feel that way. So let's have a look at what's going on in Corinth. A man was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, because Paul puts it that way, we may assume from that that this woman was not his mother, but was in fact his stepmother, that is, his father's wife. Now, from that fact, uh, nothing is mentioned about disciplining the woman. Indeed, only the man is condemned, and from that we assume several things. The man claimed to be a believer and was a member of the Corinthian church, and the woman, no doubt, was not a Christian and was not a part of the church. That must have been the case. So later on in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul will lay down a rule that Christians are not to be yoked to unbelievers. Now, some Bible students feel that 2 Corinthians 7 verse 12 also speaks directly to this matter. Remember, 2 Corinthians is a follow-up letter to 1 Corinthians, and so it's likely that in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 12, we have the outcome of the situation with this man sleeping with his stepmother. There Paul wrote, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. See, from that, we assume that the father was living, that he had been wronged. Second, that his wife had left him for his son. Did they get a divorce? Was the son now married to her? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Apparently, all that's irrelevant. It's not germane to the situation. But one thing seems clear. This was not a one-time case of a sexual misdeed, but it was ongoing. It was public. Everyone in the church knew. And the man who was living with or married to his stepmother, we don't know which, yet he was doing it in full view of the church. Now, and this is where the case gets really interesting. Paul calls what's happening sexual immorality. The Greek word is the word porneia, from which we get our English word pornography. Now, in the Bible, the word porneia does not refer to pornography. Rather, it simply means, get this, any sexual act outside of marriage of one man and one woman. 
Now, from that perspective, please note that porneia was widely practiced among the citizens of Corinth. I mean, remember the sacred prostitutes. Remember, they were permissive. Sex outside of marriage was common, and so no one condemned that. So Corinth was flooded with porneia, just as our culture is as well. Now, Christians have a very different view of sex than our culture has. I mean, for us, sex is about a lifelong commitment of faithfulness between one man and one woman, a union which is intended to express love and fidelity and making babies. Later in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul will teach that having children is for the discipling of a new generation of godly young people. I mean, wow. I mean, our view of sex is miles apart from the culture. But now watch this. Look again at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is porneia among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. You know, as permissive as Corinthian society was about divorce and sexual experience, they weren't that permissive. According to Roman historian Cicero, incest was forbidden by Roman law, and the ancient Romans would have considered this as incest. Put it another way. The citizens of Corinth, as permissive as they were, were shocked by this. That is, they were regularly talking about it. So you see, the standards of Corinthian society was better on this matter than the standards of the Christian church. So that pagan Corinthians were condemning Christian Corinthians for their behavior. And here's the conclusion. When a church doesn't take sin seriously— it loses its ability to say anything at all. Its testimony for Christ is compromised. Now to verse 2a. And you are arrogant, says Paul. Now the NIV translates this as you are proud. Probably the word puffed up is a good one. And that's surprising. What are they proud or arrogant about? Well, most likely they were proud of how tolerant they were. They were arrogant about their own spirituality and didn't do anything about sin. Why didn't the church do something about this? Well, for that matter, why is it that churches today fail to take sin seriously? And I think there are two reasons why churches, either today or throughout history, have failed to act. First, they fail to act because they have a faulty view of freedom. We do know a great deal about the church in Corinth. We know that they were divided into various factions. We know that believers were suing other believers over business practices in a court of law. We know that divorce was an issue. We know that they were in disagreement over whether a person would be allowed to eat meat sacrificed to idols. We know that some got drunk during the Lord's Supper. We know that some didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. I mean, the list just goes on and on. This was a church where everything goes. And instead of dealing with their problems, they decided, that the best way to deal with them is to leave people alone. Don't be involved in their personal lives. Do not live in relationships of accountability. Now, if you've ever read Leviticus 18, you'll find an entire chapter of the Bible devoted to unlawful sexual relationships. And that chapter warns against any sexual relationship with any close relative. And it also specifically mentions the relationship between a son and his father's wife. But the Corinthian church stressed freedom, freedom from the law. And their view of freedom opened the door to tolerance for sin. 
They simply did not have a good theology of sexual ethics within a confessing and a believing community. And even if they did, they were unwilling to hold each other accountable. That took more courage than they have. And that's one reason they failed to act. And it's also one reason that we do. But there's also a second reason. They were influenced by culture and not by Scripture. To be a community of people directed by the Bible is to be radically countercultural. God has simply called us to be unique and peculiar. And until we grasp the radical nature of our call, we are paralyzed and unable to act. And the primary reason why the church fails to impact its community is never because the community is disinterested in the gospel, but rather because we have not lived out the implications of the gospel. So what does that mean? How should we deal with sin? Should we call people out? What is the relationship between love and justice? How do we act when there is repeated and unrepentant sin? You know, in the book of Acts, in chapter 5, there is recorded an incident in which a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, were publicly called out for their sin to their entire community. And here's the problem. I know of churches who have publicly called out sin and then have decimated people and even families. They have gained a reputation for being harsh and unloving. And that's not good. But it's also not good when open sin is not dealt with. Somehow, we need to find the pathway that the Scripture invites us to to go on. We're going to be learning in this passage that God makes demands on the practice of our sexuality and that what God demands of His people is to be a model for the entire culture of what healthy sexuality looks like. Continue to stay with us through this study. John, there's a lot there to think about. Something that came to my mind is, you know, we're really not talking to the world and saying, this is how you should behave. But what we're saying is, Christians, God's people, the Bible's telling you how to behave. Yeah, exactly. And the problem that we always have is that we want to do it the other way around. We want to ignore our own issues and just go full bore on the issues that the world has. And I think that the judgment of God will start in the household of God. The Bible tells us that. And so we must begin to take these matters seriously as a church. And as we begin to do that, we are then in a place to demonstrate purity to the world, which the world so desperately, desperately wants to hear. Thanks so much, John. And uh, we enjoy a message tomorrow about excommunication. We'll look forward to that on Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. Our mission at Back to the Bible Canada is simple. We teach the Bible. We're committed to proclaiming God's Word as it guides and directs the lives of every believer. We are all faced with difficult life circumstances and questions and believe that the Bible's answers to those questions offer truth and hope. If this ministry has impacted you and you believe in its mission, we'd ask for your support this month as we approach our fiscal year end and plan for a new year of ministry. 
Your generous support means more people will be reached with the gospel through this radio program, as well as our other ministry resources throughout Canada and internationally. Your commitment to Back to the Bible Canada makes this Bible teaching ministry possible. Thank you for your prayers and your generous support. Call us today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.